We have breaking news at this time coming out of the Ukraine. John Huddy is a senior news correspondent for Newsmax and has been on the front line in the Ukraine reporting on the fighting taking place and as well as the impact the war is having on the lives of the Ukrainian people. John, do we have you on the line? I'm here. Good morning to you. Good morning to you, John. Great to have you here. We see many of the elders not wanting to leave their homes their livelihoods, their their beloved past. What is it, as you've observed, that holds them back? Is their love of country so indelibly marked on their soul? Well, it is. And and let me give you an example, Jerry. This most recent tour that I was on, I got into late Ukraine in late um, June, and I took, after a very exhausting trip across the Polish border into Ukraine, I then took the overnight train from Lviv in the western part of Ukraine to the capital city of Kiev. And I was kind of bumbling around in the train station in Lviv, trying to navigate my way to the platform. And this really nice gentleman saw that I was kind of struggling with it. I was late at night, I was exhausted, and he spoke English. And he got me to the platform, got me on the train. As it turned out, he was on the same train with his wife. His wife was in Italy visiting family. He was actually uh, doing something for the military in Hungary. They met up, they met in, in Lviv, and that's where I met them. And as it turns out, this gentleman, Vonum is his name, uh, is the second in command of the Sumi Regional Battalion. So Sumi is a city in the northeast part of the country. The Regional Battalion, these are the territorial defenders, Jerry, basically the militia members that when the war started February 24th, when Russia invaded, these are the men and women who joined the Ukrainian armed forces to fight Russia and defend their homes. And Vadim, before the war, he owned his family's auto repair store. Uh, he was a champion drag racer in Ukraine, showed me pictures, competed even in Poland, competed in Europe, competed even in the United States. And then the war happens. He had never picked up a weapon, never served in the military. And then about two weeks after the war started in February 24th, he was literally, along with his other neighbors and friends, on the front lines fighting against the Russians. Sumy, by the way, is a city just 10 miles from the Russian border, not Russian-controlled territory, from Russia. So this was one of the most intensive battles a couple weeks into the war, and he was on the front lines of it. And he, he, like so many others that I've met, represent the fabric of Ukraine, the men and women who were doctors, lawyers, storekeepers, delivery drivers, normal everyday people like you and I, Jerry, before the war, then it happens, and they're on the front lines, or their family, their friends are on the front lines. And they're defending not only their country, not only their towns, their villages, their, their, their cities, but their property, their families, their way of life. And it's a very intensive, it's been a very long battle. There's a level of fatigue setting in, but they're in it to win it. They're in it for the long haul, Jerry. Well, well John, as, as you know, on Peel Back the Onion, it's not always the story. It's what's behind the story, why people do the things they do. Now, with your boots on the ground and, and talking to the military, both from the United States and the Ukraine, what fuels Putin to see over 30,000 of his Russian soldiers killed, hundreds of Ukraine children murdered, and the land and freedom of the Ukrainians taken away? Yeah, at least 30,000 killed. I mean, that number could be as high as 40 to 60,000. I mean, it's a meat grinder that these, these Russian soldiers are being sent into, and now there's been reports that he's actually pilfering convicts, people from prisons, to fight on the front lines for Russia. That's how... That's how nasty and how violent and, and deadly a fight this is. Um, I, look, if you ask me, I think Vladimir Putin has always had designs on taking Ukraine. He's always believed that Ukraine is part of Russia, even going back to his Munich speech in 2007, when he talked about the, for Russia, and, and in his words, the threat of NATO's expansion into countries, particularly into Ukraine and the U.S. involvement. So I think he waited until the moment was right. I think he built up to this and, you know, February, you know, you know, go to February 24th and he launched the invasion. And a lot of people were very surprised by that. They thought just Russia was flexing by building up its its uh, military, you know, outside of Ukraine. And then people were stunned when he actually decided to invade. I wasn't too surprised because I thought the writing was kind of on the wall, even going back to 2007. And I think it's just to expand and get back to that kind of Soviet, that old Soviet bloc. And that's really what he, he's intent on doing and taking the eastern part of the country, taking the Donbass, taking the south. But again, Ukraine and President Voldemar Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, 
are intent on not only holding the Russians, but pushing the Russian lines back and out of Ukraine. But it's a very intense fight. They're having a very hard time because of the grinding artillery battle that which has really come to define this war. And they really need more weaponry. And that's one thing that we've consistently heard is we appreciate what the United States and its Western allies have done. We appreciate the M777s, the, the heavy weapons, the HIMARS, the uh, high mobility artillery rocket systems that are really penetrating the Russian lines and intensive and, and, and integral in this fight. But we need more in order not only to sustain this fight, but really win it, Jerry. And with this war, we're finding that starvation now is becoming a problem, not only for the local people, but this is a global, global issue for all of us. The wheat being being stored in the Ukraine and Russia selfishly not moving quickly to allow it to go to market. And we're particularly knowing of hundreds of millions of people in Africa who are now starving. How is the the broken ideal being being seen in the Ukraine right now? The ideal of being the 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 ability for them to feed the entire world is that taking away from their soul to be helpful? Well, think of it like this: before the war started, there were these massive grain silos in Odessa, and basically, yeah, throughout the country, and particularly these port regions in and around Odessa. Uh, the black the city the resort city on the black sea and, and the major port um for exports and grain exports and these si- silos were full they were at capacity the war starts they can't get the grain out then russia in some of these places mariupol uh they're going in they're, they, the russians uh were stealing taking the grain um you know hundreds of thousands and, and several million tons of grain so now fast forward kind of to the present, or at least a couple of weeks ago, when this deal is worked out, brokered by the United Nations and Turkey, uh, and signed in identical, uh, in different, in separate but identical deals by Russia and Ukraine to allow Ukrainian exports. Well, that's been happening. Uh, the first of these ships have left the port of Odessa. They've been basically docked there, stranded there uh, since February 24th. But in recent weeks, they've been allowed to leave. However, it's a precarious situation because the waters are mined. They are, there are mines outside of the port. So, and some of the, the shipping companies, Jerry, are concerned about insurance liability. So some of these regional and worldwide shipping companies don't necessarily want to send their ships in because of the insurance liabilities. Now, Turkey is allowing that. Some other countries are allowing the exports. But yes, it's been incredibly difficult um, other countries, particularly in the Middle East, particularly in Africa, are, are, are finding it very difficult because so much a bulk of their grain imports come from Ukraine, the breadbasket from Ukraine, breadbasket of Europe. And also in Ukraine, uh, when you look at the damage and destruction, um, the, the fields that have been burned because of the fighting, we saw so much of it. When I was in the Donbass region, Jerry, I was in, we were staying in Kramatorsk, a city under constant bombardment. And there were a couple of days while we were there that the city was just full of smoke. It was like being in California during the wildfires. But the reason was because of the fighting on the front lines and the rockets coming in, lighting these fields up, that was just, that created such a, a, an intense amount of smoke. And so, so all with your fields re- have been damaged and destroyed. And it's, it's really a horrible thing to see. So we really need to look at the crop now for next season. That may not even be available based upon the destruction of what's taking place now. Well, 60%, I believe the last number that I saw, um, and this could have changed, but about 60% of the crop uh, was destroyed this this year uh, for this season. Uh, they're, they're try- I think they're, they're trying to uh, save some of it based on this export, which is why this deal was so incredibly important. So, so that number may, may have gone down. Uh, but but the bottom line is so much and, and, and such a huge yield of the crop was destroyed because of the war and because of the, the inability to export uh, some of these crops and also the damage to these ports and the destruction of some of the silos and the infrastructure in and around the ports, Jerry. Well, certainly the people here at Peel Back the Onion are praying for the Ukrainians and for probably all of the people in that region that are suffering as well. Most importantly, though, you've returned safely, John, and, and we appreciate that. And talking to our audience and getting in, getting us to understand the, the battle in the Ukraine just a little bit better. We want you to stay safe, and we want to thank you for your service as the senior correspondent of Newsmax. Thank you, Jerry. Appreciate your time.
Thank you. Good health to you. Now, back to the podcast. It's a new day for all of us. Hello, my name is Van Ritchie, and it is an absolute pleasure to introduce you to Peel Back the Onion, a regular podcast where you are the most important person of the day and where life issues and challenges get to be peeled back so you have the best day of your life. And now, please welcome the hosts of Peel Back the Onion, Dr. Geraldine Cronin and Dr. Jerry Camarata. Thanks again, Van. We treasure you as a member of this podcast team. I'm Jerry Camarata, the author of The Fun Book of Fatherhood. I'm Geraldine Cronin, and we are delighted to talk to you about what's real and what is, well, just a picture a painting, an image of someone's creation. It's a journey almost all of us have gone on when we visit an art museum or had these extraordinary moments with our children when they create such memorable drawings. I bet many of you still have drawings that you've saved for a later date to show your grandchildren. What's on our mind today is what is art? What do we learn from art? How much of art is a revelation of the artist? How much of art is a tool to help people see and better understand themselves? Is art a true reflection of who we are or what we wish for or imagine or attempt to avoid? What better way to peel back the onion on the issue of art expression in this podcast than to speak to our guest today, Dr. Mark Osterman, who is a museum administrator, researcher, technologist, and artist in residence at the Low Art Museum at the University of Miami, the special, who specializes in interpretive technology initiatives, curriculum development, and developing evaluation and assessment tools related to museum practice. Dr. Osterman holds a Doctor of Education from the Florida International University. Welcome to Peel Back the Onion, Mark. Art seems to be the center, hi. Art seems to be the center of your professional life. What influenced you to express yourself through the canvas and to make your art expression your profession? Well, it's kind of a long arc that I'm about making. Well, start it. <laughs> Take your time. I like long arcs. But um, I mean, my first, my my earliest iterations and explorations with art were, like anyone, essentially doing stick figures. And uh, as a young boy, those stick figures often turned into these elaborate war scenes, these battles with missiles and their movement indicated by dot 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 and these checks. Um, created and I would just do those randomly not often they never showed any kind of particular aptitude towards art or anything above and beyond you might find with any youth an interesting exploration that did happen though as a young child my mother used to take me to her work which was in New York City in Times Square and um, she was essentially a, 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 a VP for a firm that um hosted events for nonprofit organizations. But long story short, one way for me to spend the days there is I would sit at an empty desk at a typewriter and I would learn how to make images using the typewriter. So mm. they primarily using X's to create what would almost seem like dot matrix drawings. I would often do um, skylines of New York City and mm. boats. <laughs> Um, and uh, fortunately, my mother actually collected and saved those works, <laughs> and, and they still exist today. Your but mother's anyway, something special. Yeah, yeah, it really was, and they're 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 quite fun to look at, and there's something inventive about them in terms of thinking about adapting a tool like a typewriter to become a medium for making artistic creation outside of obviously the literary form, but. Um, so anyway, that's sort of where it was at. And I never drew that much throughout the rest of my adolescence. Again, it was just something periodic. Um, 
But as I grew up and I entered pharmacy school, which my father is a pharmacist and it just seemed like a correct direction to go, I started to draw all the time without really reflecting on why that was happening. I mean, in retrospect, it seemed I was completely unhappy with my studies and the direction I was going. Unfortunately, I was in a relationship with someone at that time who convinced me that I had enough talent that I should think of going to art school, an idea that had never occurred to me. Um, this is in no fault uh, at all to my parents or other peers, but I just wasn't surrounded or influenced by creative forces until that moment. And uh, I did do that. And that changed the, the trajectory of my life. I put together a portfolio. Um, to be honest, I even appropriated works that were not my own because I didn't feel like I had enough of a portfolio. And so sort of snuck those in, but um, was able to get into the School of Visual Arts in New York City. And uh, it put me on this path to start to understand and think about what it was to be an artist. Still at that point, it wasn't a direction. I told myself I was going to be an artist. I was yeah, just Mark, the, if I may, the last podcast we did was actually on aptitude tests. And I'm assuming you never had an aptitude test that you just intrinsically felt you had the capacity and then you moved on academically? Yes, yes, exactly. And so I think fortunately for the admissions process at uh, the School of Visual Arts, it, was not solely based on what someone might deem talent, you know, or specific skill sets, but an idea of the way a candidate could articulate themselves and if they saw passion and verve and the idea of working themselves into the creative arts industry. I want to uh, throw something out. My son went to the School of Visual Arts and um, yeah, and I find that many of my patients also feel a sense of that they have to have enough self-esteem, that they have to have enough confidence to actually exhibit something for fear of rejection, that somehow or other uh, they're going to be humiliated, they're going to be uncomfortable. So they hold back um, because they're really afraid of the judgment of others. But um, it's fascinating that, so you took the route, and I know visual arts was, is pretty open and welcoming and embracing so let's continue there. Tell me more about visual arts and what happened. Let's keep going on the arc. Yeah, so suddenly I was in an environment that was just that completely open um, and embracing on every level imaginable and every medium. And that included uh, peer students and faculty. I know this doesn't happen for everyone. I just happen right. to have a spectacular and almost idealistic experience there in terms of personal um, character, intellectual and artistic growth. Um, I guess I was open and looking for that. I didn't know that that's where I would find it. But um, the types of people I was exposed to, again, both faculty and students, the diversity in um, artistic and creative expression, but also background, socioeconomic and cultural was completely fascinating um, and was so new and refreshing. I, I come from, I grew up, was born in Queens, grew up in Long Island to a middle to somewhat upper middle class um, environment that was really pretty much in a bubble, um, right. extremely white environment, very lovely, very idealistic. I. I was one of those people in the 80s when you would watch a Spielberg film, those neighborhoods that were in those films were <laughs> close depictions to, to mine. We would play in the streets and it was safe and um, right. communal and interesting. Of course, there was a lot of darkness at this point as you're an older person <laughs> going yes. on behind closed doors. But um, exactly from the outside looking in, it, it seemed But like you also broke out, happened. you know, you broke out. You yeah. took a different journey. You took a different journey than anyone in your family. Yes, completely. And, and that also takes a lot of guts and courage, because especially in the creative world, you really don't know if you're going to get, uh, how you're going to make a living. Can you support yourself? And how is how are you going to be received out there? So I think it takes guts. Well, thank what, you. Were your drawings, Mark, a way of purging your soul, purging your life, purging your thought, 
uh, of all of that which took place, which perhaps you didn't like, you didn't want, and this was a way in which you can get it off your chest and move on? At the time, no. What they really were, were me understanding how to have a deeper connection to things that completely inspired and and fascinated me through my adolescence, but in a passive way. So watching a movie, I, I'm a voracious reader now, but not as a, a younger person, but the few books I did read that touched upon me, I didn't think deeply about those experiences or why they touched me. And so my beginning explorations in art, like most, were highly derivative of existing movements and styles, but just really trying to explore why was I connected to those things and what moments of elation did they give me as someone younger? So it really took a long time to sort of find my own style and direction um, that's still connected and derivative of other movements as all art is. But um, those earlier iterations, Jerry, within school were really about that thing, you know, connecting to things like science fiction, fantasy. Um, I did, even though it frightened me, enjoy horror films um, and sort of darker narratives. Well, you were a visual guy. Yeah. Yeah, and you bonded to the visual. And somehow that you processed that, and then it got exhibited in your work later on. Yeah, in an organic way, right? So in an, Very organic. organic. <laughs> yeah, you can, this is not something. Would you su- suggest, Mark, that your portfolio perhaps is more the images of your voracious appetite in reading and characters and places that you've, you've seen there as opposed to your, your personal life? Yes, I'd absolutely agree with that, both fiction and, and nonfiction. Um, and this covers that, but obviously thinking about, I read, I read uh, the news and current events uh, all the time as well. So ideas about identity, sociopolitics, things like that are definitely deeply informed in the work I'm producing. Okay, let's take a look. I think the audience would want to see some of your works. Okay, so when I was looking through it, of course, I selected it, but you gave it to me, so I could select it. And there's a whole group of women here, and they're wearing hats. And I find them very um, attractive. Sunglasses, the way their head is tilted, curvaceous. Um, And I wondered what what drew you to this this image and different uh, variations of it? So when I think about this to answer that question, I think sort of two strands. One is the formal one, which is what am I doing and why are there a whole bunch of images of women with hats on? And that just goes back to the concept of serial art. Um, Explain that to me, please. I don't, I'm a psychologist, not an artist, even though I would like to be. Go ahead. Uh, Well, two quick examples that might be accessible to yourself and the general public. One would be Monet. And so Monet would do serial images of the same object. So, for example, I think he has 41 um, versions of the Waterloo Bridge. Right. Why he would do that was that he was exploring light and how it would change the environment and just showing how every moment in time is completely unique and has its own form of beauty and a worthwhile moment for reflection but also the idea that you know one snapshot of one thing just simply can't and does not capture it all another quick example would be someone like a completely different art form but if you think about andy warhol and his use of serial images over and over um different conceptual idea behind that one is related to the monet where you can keep revisiting an image and getting more information about it but he was also tying it into ideas about consumption. I would like to be in your class, sir. You just taught me something, and you're a very good teacher. I'm, I never thought of it in those terms. But why the woman, and why the so, hat? Right. So that's that's how I explained is really sort of the stylistic art. You know, thinking about the formal art aspect. The women, even though they are not her, they are honestly all inspired both by women of my mother's and my aunt's generation. 
Ah. Um, and a sense and idea about elegance, which is always changing and formulating for how fashion changes and time changes. I personally have a fascination for the idea of elegance between the 1920s through the 1950s. Me too. And I also have a, a fascination with the idea of accessories. And that covers anything from, in this case, the hats, but right. to wearing jewelry, yes. glasses, and other things. And so I'm not some huge, deep um, scholar of art and art history, but the earliest moments of human creation meander between tools and accessories which were adornments for people right. so immediately people were interested in how can they adapt and change their surrounding environments and commune with them in a way that that changes and affects their own aesthetics yeah, and Mark, that there's the symbolism tied to that that may have right. you know, issues related to cultural rituals and cultural status etc but to me, that means like things we don't think about, but hats, necklaces, bracelets, yes. rings, they have this huge, huge, deep, deep, rich I agree with you. to humanity. Mark, I, Mark, I looked at your history, uh, your family history. I did some, uh, did some research on you, and, and I noticed that your aunt was one of the foremost fundraisers in the, in the United States. And I also noticed that, and based upon your comment just now, that your aunt uh, was a fashion lady. Yes. Uh, she always made sure she had all of her jewelry. So I, I'm wondering, you know, since we're all about peeling back the onion here and trying to get out the emotions and the reasons why people do what they do, um, was your aunt uh, particularly uh, an influence on your on some of your art? She is, especially in the sense of a woman who achieved this complete balance between elegance, femininity, but complete strength and empowerment. Mm -hmm. um, and she was doing that in particular through years and decades where that was much more bold and took a lot more effort than it might take today, which still takes an extreme amount of effort to have those qualities. Mm -hmm. um, similarly, my mother um, was in that world, but in a very different way and uh, leaned more into ideas about aesthetics and beauty, which, you know, I think about and how they are applied to herself. So again, like these women, they definitely, they have elements of um, my mother and my aunt. And going back to one of the earlier comments about that they may be curvaceous and look one way or another, sometimes I'm purposefully making at least their faces not, um, what might be deemed conventionally beautiful. <clears throat> Other times I do it, but I, I won't <clears throat> lie. My own upbringing, how I see and can fantasize about women still, I have a self-awareness of it, but still can lean into what you might call that male lens where there is a sense of objectification of these right. females. Um, mm -hmm. I try to do it in a way where I don't think that's a completely negative thing but no. I can see and understand that someone might find it as a way to either criticize these or have a critical review of this type of series. Mark I want to say something to you. I looked at all of these and this is this one struck me and the reason now I know why it struck me I wear accessories. <laughs> I hold on to the elegance of the past and people who know me know that I like to dress and I like to put it together and I like style and the aesthetics and the aesthetics could be in anything. It could be in a ballet, it could be in going to a store where they're just magnificent objects. But I also look at the beauty of women and the elegance of women. And now I know why I was drawn to it. So thank you for that. Uh, I'd like to look at another um, picture with you. It has to do with a woman, and she's her head is resting on her hand. She's pretty. Um, again, I see a sensuality. She's curvaceous, but she looks very burdened, tired, like she just needs to rest because she feels um, somewhat 
overwhelmed and maybe there's some pain in there emotional pain i'm not sure what do you what do you what's your take on that one i just want to confirm that i'm looking at the same image so is she this is the one is she wearing a hat and sunglasses is this where she's looking at a book no she's just sitting there looking with her eyes closed okay i think i see this one so yeah Yeah, I mean, for me, this just gets more into it becomes more internalized where, you know, so much of what we're talking about is for the way we dress, right? (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. cliche, we dress for success, but how we dress does affect us psychologically, how we feel, how we hold ourselves outside. But it is also a very self-involved and can be deemed kind of narcissistic. And Mm -hmm. so in this case, it's just, it's a moment instead of, um, having all of the pride and putting oneself completely oh. out there, it becomes internalized and questioning the whole process. So it's more about sort of an internal reflection that this character's having. And um, just not much more than that. You know, Jerry looked at it, I showed it to him, and he thought she was just <laughs> taking a nap. <laughs> and I said, you're crazy. There's a lot going on in there. But as you just described it to me, I never would have thought of it in those terms. Well, so, and I just want to throw out there. So these are my terms, but I'm, and this also is attached to my role as working within 20 years of museum education. It's a, you know, I really believe in that if art is done really well, that multiple viewers should be able to pull out multiple narratives that are informed by their well, own personal experiences. I know there are many artists who put together work and they want their work seen as they have that intention. I'm not that way. I'm, I'm excited by people who draw their own stories. And it just means that I was able to put something together that provokes people to think, go within their own mind and create a narrative. All right. So take this one for me. I think you did it. And I think you've already, I mean, I, I'm amazed by how open I'm feeling. And I wasn't aware of what you're saying until you said it now regarding the aesthetics and how that was brought out by your aunt and by your mother, uh, the woman that she just wanted to have a second of, please, I don't need to accessorize. Let me just be. Mm-hmm. But uh, this one really sort of upset me. Number, it has to deal with the woman looking at, um, in the forest. And I have this, um, I had a visceral reaction to it. It sort of turned me off, and I didn't know if it was a he or a she, and I didn't know how to understand the expression. Right. So this one actually just done last week, so within the Ah. last seven days. Um, So a lot with art, at least mine, again, artists are all unique and different, but certainly almost all artists take advantage of chance mistakes um there's some of the best moments that happen is an unplanned moment but then to have the realization how to take that somewhere so uh this is a piece where did not conceive the expression on the woman's face it's how it came out so typically when i'm doing expressions i'll do some quick lines and see where that's going and then some refinement to push it in the direction contemplative happy sad angry, what have you. This was one that it, it happened with complete immediacy. But uh, when I looked at it, um, I really loved the ambiguity of it. That To me, I can see okay. it as upset, as pensive, as being in deep thought, certainly not happy, but mm-hmm. possibly contemplative. And it was only after that, this was just a study of doing a figure and so mm. once I saw that uh, expression on her face, I decided that it, she, if you look at my drawings, a lot of them, they're isolated because I really have a fascination with negative space. And when a drawing is done beautifully, it can be just that and be extremely powerful. There's an elegance to it. But in this case, that expression then pushed me, I want her somewhere. And for me, I have a deep, deep connection and feeling about trees. I just love trees. Oh. I grew up in the house I grew up, I was fortunate enough to be in a cul-de-sac and the back of my house was a forest. It wasn't a giant forest, but it certainly went on for a long ways and um, grew up on Long Island and spent a lot of time in 
Connecticut and Massachusetts and other places. And I'm fortunate enough to also live in a place now that is just has an incredible tree canopy throughout the neighborhood. Mark, anyway, I'm, Mark, I'm particularly, idea, uh, go ahead, Mark, I'm Joe. sorry. No, please don't get Mark, finish, finish your statement. I was just going to finish the thought. So I yeah, wanted please. her place somewhere. And for me, placing her within a forest or surrounded by nature matched that expression. But that just goes back to my whole point, right? The drawing wasn't planned. I didn't say I was going to draw a woman sitting on the floor in a forest. I was okay. doing a figurative study and nothing more. The unexpected expression on her face came out through quick and immediacy use of charcoal. And then I wanted her situated somewhere and suddenly she's in a forest. So that's what I mean about chance, you know, right. and possibly the stakes. I wasn't Mark, convinced that I loved the expression. but I Yeah, I'm, I'm particularly enamored with the fact that you look at yourself not only as an artist, a professional artist, but also as a student. And we all really need to look at ourselves that way. And when we try to peel back our lives, sometimes we think we know it all, but we don't. And sometimes it's through experiment that we, we learn new things in life. Uh, but as an academic uh, with art as your specialty, can you give us some thought on what parents could do to create better appreciation for arts in their children? And I'm just, not just thinking about having fun with art, but rather as a method to help them express and understand their private world as you grew up using art to express and understand your world. Right. Well, I'll, I'll just come out <laughs> being transparent. I have a complete bias in this area. The best way for that to be done is for parents to bring their children to museums and all sorts of museums. There's probably over 30,000 different types of museums across the United States, ranging from anywhere to encyclopedic to cultural to historic homes to just historic environments that are outside etc but i think bringing young people to these places where they're able to learn something about history and the arc of history through human creativity is empowering and rich they see the world in a different light these spaces are often contemplative they're different they're separated somewhat, even though museums are starting to integrate themselves more and more with technology, but they represent a different way and place for um, socialization. And that kind of like early um, entrance, I hate to use the term indoctrination, but that type of exposure is a better word to museums and the role that and the impact they can have in communities is incredible. And then lastly, Again, this is bias, you know, and leaning liberal and left, but if parents can show a support for those types of institutions and that support can, whether it's financial or just being an ongoing visitor, I think ho uh, helps a young mind see these places as viable, interesting and important to communities. When, when a parent seems to see a child having a problem or having an issue uh, using art, do you see art being a great vehicle where the parent can sit that child down and say, let's draw a picture or let's express how we feel through the drawing? Without question. I, and I think there's well-documented quantifiable mm -hmm. research in that area. I do think one needs to be careful. I think that it's the process that's amazing. Mm -hmm. And there's something mindful and present about it and how important that is for us to have those kinds of experiences. And then the idea that art pushes you to be creative and innovative, mm -hmm. which means that's completely transferable in the end, whether you wanna be really good at business administration, being an accountant, right? Where you, you need right. to figure out something and do something amazing with these numbers or working in the creative arts industry. So the arts um, importance in general education just can't be understated enough. The area that I, and this is for me personal, is that I think it's worthwhile to look at and critically analyze, not just for skill, but even psychologically what's going behind uh, a work of art. But one needs to be careful, and I think conditional in terms of the conclusions they come to. So like, mm -hmm. this might be, you know, dealing with a traumatic issue right. in your life, because I personally know that there are 
pieces of work I've done that most people just because they're they're used to and enjoy conventional images if they see something that I've made disturbing they immediately make this connection that I must be disturbed rather (laughs) than I'm discussing a disturbing situation I I have another question for you um you said earlier that you were not really into being a reader and that you were more visual as far as movies, television, visual stimuli. When I was young. Yes. I want to know how you made the leap, ready, to being an academic. That all happened at the School of Visual Arts. How did that happen? So mainly mainly through faculty, but certainly um, a large grouping of peers where it's very unfortunate and um, we are now living in a climate more so than ever I've seen in my life that there is a strain of anti-intellectualism as a, a way of being um, and a badge of pride, which is shocking to me. But, you know, when I grew up, there was still that you have the derogatory term of nerd that right. student who's pushed to the corner you know when we were younger it's been interesting to watch this arc where things like comic books and science fiction now rule pop culture but when I was of age you know in the early 80s and late 70s you were definitely relegated to you know kind of a weirdo to be involved and and interested in those things right so um I'm sorry I just completely lost my point I don't, well what i was saying <laughs> is how you made the leap oh so from, yeah so yeah, thank you to, so yeah. this leap what happens is those people like myself who maybe had whether it was a deep interest or you know a fleeting one which was mine we suddenly were aggregated in these art schools as these groups of people who were then moving into creative arts industries that were defining pop culture and so when I was in school, though, experiencing that, I, it became obvious very quickly. You needed to com- be a complete intellectual and academic and okay. a, a lifelong learner and a student of study to really excel and be beyond others. Because many people are gifted with the skill set to be an amazing illustrator or painter, but it doesn't mean that they're pushing any kind of idea boundaries or conceptual things or doing something that's innovative or new they can copy what's been done before to get to that new level it just requires an insane amount of knowledge of what's happened before otherwise you're repeating yourself so those those moments happened in school and also this way you made an impact out there and you've been making an impact and i want to thank you very much for this um meeting you know when i met you Jerry and I met you down in Florida. I thought you were really a quiet guy. <laughs> you're not so quiet. You really have a lot to say, and um, you're quite a teacher. And I learned a lot today, and I look forward to seeing you again, and your lovely wife and your daughter. And, thank you. Uh, thank you've, you. In, you've inspired us, Mark. I think you've inspired us now to look at a piece of art, not as a reflection of the artist, and the artist's personal life, but a reflection of the artist's intellect and the artist's drive to try to make a difference. And I've never looked at art that way. I've always looked at it as a personalization of the artist. But now I realize, you know, you can be calm, cool, and collective like yourself, but yet have a lot of passion, a lot of drive, even a lot of anger for what the world is about. And that's really what you're recording in your art. And for that, we we are really... Very appreciative for you for being uh, being with us. Thank you. I right. thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I'll oh, just I'm close it with something quick where a mentor of mine talked about, it's not every artist can be whoever and whatever they want to be, but he had always said to me that my role was to be both an antenna and a mirror of society. So, uh. you know, mo- many artists are, their art is about being deeply personal and internalized, but the role I've chosen to be is more that, that I'm an antenna, both receiving and broadcasting and also a mirror to make people aware of things that I think are important. Who's the mentor? 
His name was Arnold Messies. He he passed away a few years ago now. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you. A great day to you. Good health. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Mark, uh, for an incredible uh, presentation and uh, experience. Thank you. Thank you. My commentary today is about the works of Dr. Mark Osterman and how one finds their own creative aptitudes. When Mark and I spoke in Florida recently, he delved deeper into his childhood. Now, Mark is a quiet man who, one would suspect, would not produce such provocative drawings and have such a very interesting mind. Some of his drawings actually drew me in and made me question what message was he trying to convey. As in the works of Willy Ganger and Eva Hess, the intensity of their lives and their experiences are reflected in their artistic works. I believe as in music, poetry, sculpture, and dance, to name a few, that we really don't know the complexity and multidimensional level of the person who's producing the work. So much is hidden within ourselves. We need to learn more and more, especially in art, about their lifespan and, as Mark used, his arc. What is important for us to take away today is just like Dr. Osterman, we should find a way to express our inner needs. Here's one, and it's not art, and it's for real. One of my patients, who is deeply struggling with her grandson, who has serious neurological deterioration, said to me, you're not going to believe it. I actually can play the drums. And you know what? I'm beating away the pain. Others have told me that knitting is a way to reduce anxiety and tension that they feel in their fingers and their hands. It's also a way to keep you from picking your face, biting your fingernails, or playing with your hair. It allows you to just relax and know that you can create something. And some of us are terrific sweater knitters. Dr. Osterman found his way to express his inner conflicts, needs, and wishes. So you don't also have to feel trapped living in your own inner space. Dr. Osterman has given us much food for thought today. We should look at our lives as a huge canvas. What we reveal tomorrow at that can on that canvas will be inspired by everything to the, in our lives to that moment. I hope your life's canvas can be a legacy to who you are, what you have, what you can give your family, and so that people can get to know you. How important it is for all of us to take the time to learn how to peel back the onion. I hope our podcast will inspire you to do just that. Thank you again. Well, we're at the point of doing an email today. And here it goes. Dear Peel Back the Onion. I don't know if I'm doing the right thing, but I'm very truthful when I speak to my young children. And sometimes that means being a little harsh. I was told by my friends that I should not be so hypercritical. My mother raised me, however, this way, but I don't think this style of parenting is really working. So she says, help! Well, Geraldine, I I usually do a commentary each time on parenting, and I think this is the perfect platform to speak on the issue of parenting. Go for it. (laughs) Oh, if all of our children were a young Sheldon. Not sure if that is a good thing, but you know what I mean. Our kids need to go through life being able to understand failure, and to learn it as a tool. Parents who are hypercritical, although their intent is out of love and protection, will be perceived instead as mean, controlling, and manipulative. It's so important that the tone and delivery of your message to be helpful is experienced as non-judgmental, giving your youngster the space to explore and question their decisions. Hopefully, they'll come to you for support and advice. Being hypercritical causes distance and leads to poor self-esteem in your child. They then see themselves as disappointers and can't trust their own judgment. Child behavior can often be seen in animal behavior in the animal kingdom as well. 
So one good reading for you to think about next time you go out and buy books is The Fun Book of Fatherhood. Well, it's time to say farewell and thank you for allowing us to spend some time together. As we say, the podcast and show belongs to you. We hope you enjoyed our conversation today and you will generously share it with your friends and colleagues. And until next time, we hope all things go your way and the core of who you are is always a beacon seen by others. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on this podcast. If there's an issue which you would have discussed on Peel Back the Onion, please send us a note to peelbacktheonionpodcast at gmail.com. We will always try to get as many emails on the air as we can. From your hosts, Dr. Geraldine Cronin and Dr. Jerry Camerata, along with a terrific production staff at K-Town Studios in Kingston, New York, and from me, Van Ritchie, we hope every day is a great day for you and everyone in your life. Thank you.